You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, Episode 7, Acadia, Lake George, and the Arrival of Loudoun. Last week, we looked at General Braddock's advance on Fort Duquesne in what is today western Pennsylvania, and the massacre of General Braddock and most of his army, primarily by Indians and a few Frenchmen. The British retreat, overseen by junior officers like George Washington and Thomas Gage, gave France undisputed control of the Ohio Valley. But Fort Duquesne was only one of four goals that the British military planners had for the summer of 1755 in North America. Today, we're going to take a look at those other three. One of the other goals was to have French forces in Acadia remove all British defenses that would prevent the British from moving into mainland Canada. For years, the French and British stood eyeball to eyeball in forts across the Michiguash River. The French Fort Bezure and the British Fort Lawrence kept each other in check. Ever since 1713, when the British first took control of Acadia, the area we now know as Nova Scotia, the local French Acadians living under British rule had caused trouble for the army. Now, London had tasked General William Shirley, who was also governor of Massachusetts, with taking Fort Bajour, leaving French Canada open to attack. Now, General Shirley did not share General Braddock's disdain for militia, and Shirley raised about 2,000 New England militia to join about 270 British regulars laying siege to Fort Bezajour. The French had only 162 French regulars and about 300 militia from the local Acadians and the Mi'kmaq Indians to defend the fort. Given the overwhelming numbers, it took only a few weeks before the French surrendered and withdrew. Once victorious, the British took the highly unusual step of removing the civilian population almost in its entirety. British authorities demanded that the local Acadian cease the practice of Catholicism and swear allegiance to King George II. When the locals understandably balked at this demand, officials declared them all enemies of the state. The government seized all of their lands and possessions and forcibly deported about 5,400 Acadians to England or other English colonies. Another seven to 10,000 fled the area for other parts of Canada. Now, considering the entire French population of Canada was only about 75,000 at this time, this really was a massive disruption. With the area effectively depopulated, thousands of New Englanders moved into the many towns and farms, snatching up land at bargain prices. Within a few years, the region went from an almost entirely French Catholic population to an English Protestant one. General Braddock had left General Shirley pretty much just in charge of the Acadia situation, but with General Braddock's death at Monongahela, General Shirley assumed control over all forces in North America but he continued to follow the general plans laid out in London much earlier. But outside of the fight at Monongahela, General Shirley did not accomplish much in 1755. With the summer fighting season coming to an end, 
the British had accomplished very little outside of Acadia. News of the destruction of Braddock's army in June still reverberated across the continent. The British naval blockade of the St. Lawrence River had been an almost complete failure. The French had been able to send six battalions of regulars, about 3,000 men, to reinforce Quebec and Louisbourg. The British only captured two ships containing about 400 of the reinforcements. General Shirley still talked about taking Fort Niagara, but had made little progress. Fights over supplies and logistical problems transporting equipment meant the troops had only reached the eastern shore of Lake Ontario by September. And by the way, if you want a better visual of all this, you can visit my blog post at amrevpodcast.blogspot.com where I've posted a map showing all the area forts in the region. The old trading post, Fort Oswego, was too small and dilapidated to serve as a base of operations. So, Shirley decided to spend several months building a proper fort and put off an attack on Fort Niagara until the following spring. Meanwhile, Colonel William Johnson, who was supposed to be assaulting Fort St. Frederick at Crown Point, also fell behind schedule. By September, his forces had arrived at the southern tip of Lac St. Sacrament, which he decided to rename Lake George in honor of the king. There, he built Fort Edward, named in honor of Edward, Duke of York, one of the king's grandsons. While the British colonial troops made their tentative advances, the French planned to counter these moves. Jean Erdmann Baron Diskau was among those who had slipped past the British blockade back in June. Diskau, a German-born officer, commanded the French regulars who had been sent to Canada. Also arriving was a new Canadian governor-general, Pierre de Rigaud, Marquis de Vaudreuil Cavignel, who I'm just going to call Vaudreuil. The new political and military leaders planned to respond to the British advances much more aggressively. Both men initially thought the defense of Fort Niagara was the key to the French theater of operations and placed the bulk of their troops there. However, realizing that the British did not seem inclined to move on Niagara that year and receiving exaggerated reports of movement against Fort St. Frederick, Discow took about 3,000 men, regulars, militia, and Indians to go defend Fort St. Frederick. When he arrived, he realized the fort was not in any immediate danger and decided to go further on the offensive. Leaving most of the French regulars at the fort, Discow took about 1,500 troops, about 200 regulars, 600 Canadian militia, and 700 Indians, to go attack Fort Edward. When the Indians seemed reluctant to attack the fort directly, they found a new target, a camp several miles from the fort where Colonel Johnson was planning to build a second fort. Colonel Johnson heard that the enemy was near Fort Edward and sent much of his own troops, a force of about 1,000 Massachusetts militia and about 200 Mohawk allies, to go attack the French. So, at the same time Discow was trying to advance on Johnson, Johnson's troops were also advancing on Discow. Although the French had only a small numerical advantage, they were able to ambush the British and force a panicked retreat. The men, however, were able to recover and restore order upon returning to the main camp, and this first skirmish became known as Bloody Morning Scout. Colonel Johnson, alerted by the sounds of battle, had placed a temporary breastworks and cannon to defend the camp, and this was enough to stop the Indians who had been chasing down the British retreat. The Indians did not want to rush the cannon. In hopes of shaming the Indians into attack, Discow ordered his 200 French regulars to charge the British cannon. They obeyed, of course, 
but watching the regulars get cut down en masse by canister shot did not encourage the remaining troops to follow them. For the rest of the day, troops fired at each other from a distance with little impact on either side, other than Disgow himself suffering a serious but not mortal wound, and on the other side Colonel Johnson suffered a less serious wound. As night began to fall, French forces began to pull back for a return to Fort St. Frederick. About 400 Indians returned to the site of the original ambush to collect booty, scalps, and prisoners whom they had left tied up there. While there, about 200 New Hampshire militia sent from Fort Edward to aid Colonel Johnson stumbled across the Indians, resulting in an evening firefight. A few were killed on each side, but the main result was that the Indians decided to kill and scalp all of their prisoners so they could retreat faster. In the end, the battle was more or less a draw. Both sides lost about 330 to 340 men, exact numbers always in dispute, but the British held the field, which technically made them the winners. The main result, though, was that both sides spent the winter building much better forts. The French built Fort Carillon at the northern end of Lake George, about 15 miles south of Fort St. Frederick, to prevent a spring landing by the British. The British built Fort William Henry on the site of Colonel Johnson's camp to protect against a French landing against Fort Edward. The fort, named after William, Duke of Cumberland, King George's son, and Henry, Duke of Gloucester, another of the king's grandson, in an apparent attempt to honor as many members of the royal family as possible. Colonel Johnson had serious political ambitions, and brown-nosing with the royal family never hurt one's chance for advancement. Now also in the last episode, I introduced Thomas Pelham Hollis, the Duke of Newcastle, who had been Secretary of State and who became Prime Minister in 1754. I wanted to talk for a minute about Prime Minister as a position, uh, because it was still relatively new to the English government. When King George I stopped attending ministerial meetings a few decades earlier, the ministers decided they needed to have one person running things, or else everything got out of control. There never really was a formal establishment of the job of prime minister. It really evolved over time out of necessity. Although the title was sometimes used earlier, historians generally consider Robert Walpole to be the first prime minister beginning in the 1720s. But even then, it was not a formal title in a nation that was obsessed with formal titles. After Walpole left office in 1742, Spencer Compton, Earl of Wilmington, served for just over a year, and at 70 years old was seen as more of a temporary caretaker. A year later, in 1743, Henry Pelham, a protege of Walpole, landed the role, which he held until his death in 1754, and his brother, Thomas Pelham Hollis, the Duke of Newcastle, then took over as Prime Minister. So as you can see, there was relatively little tradition behind this role. The prime minister was not elected, but was appointed by the king. Okay, technically the king or queen still appoints prime ministers. Today, however, the appointment part is largely ceremonial. The leader of the political party that wins a majority gets the appointment. But back in the 1700s, the king may have paid some attention to politics, but in the end he appointed whomever he wanted. Now because Pelham Hollis was the Duke of Newcastle, he was ineligible to sit in the House of Commons. Instead, he sat in the House of Lords. Even in the 1700s, Commons served as the center of political power for the country. The House of Commons drove politics, and Pelham Hollis 
who I will now simply go back to calling Newcastle to make things easier, needed a leader in the House of Commons to get things done. There were two strong candidates in the House of Commons, William Pitt and Henry Fox, and Newcastle did not really like either of them, and they didn't like him much either. Fox, as you may remember, was an ally of the Duke of Cumberland, the king's favored son, and the man who had worked to create the aggressive plan of attack in North America. Newcastle was not happy when Cumberland and Fox had replaced his plans for an American assault with a much more ambitious one that, predictably, did not work. Pitt, on the other hand, had spent much of his time in Parliament attacking Newcastle's policies. Earlier in his career, Newcastle had attempted to bring Pitt into the ministry, but George II vetoed the idea. Pitt opposed all military spending in Hanover and thought British defenses were much better spent on a strong navy. Now, King George, who was still the elector of Hanover and considered it his home, was not a fan of anyone who did not see Hanover as a vital part of the national interest. As a result, Pitt remained out of power, criticizing the ministry. Even worse for Pitt's political prospects, he became close to George, Prince of Wales, the future King George III. Prince George openly disagreed with many of the policies of King George II, his grandfather. And although Prince of Wales was the heir apparent as his father, Frederick, had died in 1751, making him next in line, but despite the rules of primogeniture, it was clear the king would have preferred Hedrick's younger brother, William, the Duke of Cumberland, rather than Frederick's eldest son, George, to rule after him. These guys did not get along with each other either. So, in the end, Newcastle grudgingly forged an alliance with Fox, which also meant working closely with Cumberland. Pitt, who essentially became the voice of opposition in the Commons, even though everyone involved here considered themselves a Whig. The next step was deciding what to do with the American strategy for the coming year. The hope in 1755 had been to strike quickly and decisively, capturing the disputed territory and critical French defenses before the French could really react. All of this was being done before there was even a declaration of war. But by 1756, with Braddock's defeat in the Ohio Valley, and with General Shirley and Colonel Johnson failing even to make an attack on two of the three other targets for the prior year, the chances for a first strike were gone. The French were understandably outraged at what had happened and would end up formally declaring war that spring. The French still controlled the Ohio Valley and all the important forts along the New York and New England frontier. But with General Braddock's death in 1755, as I said, General Shirley assumed command of the forces in North America and was the commander at the beginning of 1756. Although Shirley had been born in England, he had clearly gone native from his many years in the colonies. Shirley, who was also governor of Massachusetts, had agreed to pay New England militia the going rate that they would make as common laborers. This was more money than British regulars made. While it allowed him to fill his regiments with volunteers, it clearly irritated the bean counters back in London. Aside from the money issue, Shirley had also tried to avoid two contentious issues that London considered essential to the good order of the empire. One was a proclamation that all colonial militia officers would be subordinate to regular army officers. This meant that the lowest lieutenant or ensign in the regular army could give orders to generals and other top commanders in the militia. As you might guess, militia officers took this as a huge insult. 
Second, enlisted militia were subject to the same rules of discipline that existed for enlisted soldiers in the regular army when acting in conjunction with British forces. Now, life for enlisted regulars was a harsh one. Whipping was common for the most minor offenses, and execution was also commonplace for more significant offenses that would probably be considered minor in civilian life. Shirley knew these rules would be major impediments to obtaining officers and soldiers he needed for the coming fight. So Shirley assured provincial leaders that militia units would fight in separate areas from regulars. This would mean that no regular officers of lower rank would be around to give orders to militia commanders. Shirley also promised enlisted men that they would only be subject to provincial discipline and not regular army discipline. Since militia were operating in entirely separate theaters of battle, he interpreted this as not acting in conjunction with regular forces. Therefore, the rules from London would not apply. What Shirley did not fully appreciate was that political backstabbers were active within his own army as much as they were back in London. Colonel Johnson was regularly corresponding with officials in London, and he took every opportunity to criticize just about everything that Shirley did. Johnson was a political ally of New York Lieutenant Governor James Delancey, and Delancey was upset at Shirley's appointment as a general, which also allowed Shirley to benefit financially from all the military contracts. Delancey, who wanted those contracts for himself and did not get them, was looking for revenge, and his protege, Colonel Johnson, was in the perfect position to undermine General Shirley. Another backstabber was Thomas Polnall, who had arrived in the colonies in 1753 and became lieutenant governor of New Jersey in 1755. He had close friends on both sides of the Atlantic. You may recall that during the Albany Conference, he had allied himself with Johnson and was now working with him to undercut Shirley with leaders back in London. In London, Prime Minister Newcastle only saw that all the aggressive plans for advancement had failed, costs were far over budget, and everyone was telling him that Shirley was a disaster. So when Cumberland and Fox brought him a new plan, which called for replacing Shirley with an experienced military administrator named John Campbell, the Earl of Loudoun, he agreed with the consensus. Of course, Colonel Johnson hadn't been any more successful than Shirley that summer, but he received a baroncy, which made him Sir William. He also received a prize of £5,000 sterling for his heroism at Lake George, and his buddy, Thomas Pono, landed a new gig as Secretary Extraordinary to the new military commander, Loudon. Pono had returned to London to complain about General Shirley, and when Loudon became Shirley's replacement, Pono came back on the same ship with Loudon. Now Loudon arrived in Virginia in July of 1756, ready to straighten out the mess and save the colonies. About 6,000 regular troops would also soon arrive to assist in a new major offensive against the French. In addition to serving as military commander-in-chief, Loudon also became the new governor of Virginia. Almost immediately, Loudon heard complaints from all sides about Shirley. Shirley had promoted colonial officers without authorization. He had recruited militia by making promises related to how they would serve and be deployed without the regular army supervision. And many complained about the military contracts that benefited Shirley's friends and family. Loudon quickly went from simply replacing Shirley to sending him back to England to face criminal charges. So, Shirley headed back to London, where he spent the next few years trying to justify everything he had done. Of course, when Loudon's plans failed miserably the following year, 
Shirley could basically tell everyone in London, see, I told you so, to all the officials. And the ministry eventually made him governor of the Bahamas. For Loudon, even as Shirley was not a criminal, the new commander decided that British and colonial forces had been deployed terribly. Like most British officers, Loudon took a dim view of Indians or colonial militia as useful soldiers. The notion that provincials could manage an entire offensive without even guidance from regular officers seemed like a terrible idea. The fact that provincials were occupying a series of forts along the New York frontier just set them up as easy targets for attack. When Loudon learned that the militia refused to serve alongside regulars, he angrily summoned the top provincial officers for a conference. Loudon was a professional officer. He knew how to take orders from superiors, and he expected nothing less from his subordinates. He had gotten a modification so that senior provincial officers would be treated as senior captains, meaning that they would only have to take orders from regular officers with the rank of major and higher. But the colonial officers were unmoved. They had signed up based on certain conditions, including not having to take orders from regular field officers of lower rank and not being subject to regular army discipline. If Loudon insisted on changing these conditions, his provincial army would evaporate through the resignation of officers and the desertion of enlisted men. And realizing his impossible position, Loudon backed down and allowed the provincials to proceed as planned. However, he wrote a series of angry letters back to London describing the unreasonable lack of obedience among the colonists and blaming Shirley for making these deals in the first place. Loudon's frustration was not limited to militia. The colonial governments refused to provide housing for thousands of regular troops he had brought with him or provide any other assistance that was not paid for at market rates. Loudon's outrage seemed to be that he and his men should be greeted as liberators, there at great expense to protect the colonists from the French and the Indians. He did not want to hear arguments about how the English Bill of Rights guaranteed protection from the quartering of troops. Loudon frequently had to threaten to use military force to take the homes of civilians in order to get the local governments to act appropriately and provide his soldiers with some housing. None of Loudon's views would be seen as inappropriate in London. General Braddock had held the same views a year earlier. His quick death was the only thing that prevented Braddock from getting into the same fight with the colonial governors. These leaders were seeing the fundamental schism that would eventually lead to future war and independence. The British government was designed around obedience by those in lower stations to those in clearly defined higher stations. The nearly universal view among the colonists was that contractual agreements and basic age-old fundamental rights of people were more important than deference to superiors. The more fundamental problem was that the change of leadership during the prime summer fighting months of 1756 and the internal squabbling with the colonials had led to almost nothing happening in the fight against the French. Since the French had declared war officially in May 1756, the gloves were off. Both sides did not need to worry about diplomacy anymore. That same month, Louis-Joseph Marquis de montcalm gozan de Saint-Varen, and we're just going to call him Montcalm going forward, had arrived in Canada with hundreds of French regulars to command the French forces against Britain and her colonies. And with the British squabbling, Montcalm was free to take the initiative. And next week, he'll do just that. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. 
It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.